Tonight on The Readout. You're entitled to believe and trust advice of counsel. You had one of the leading constitutional scholars in the United States, John Eastman, say to President Trump, this is a protocol that you can follow. It's legal. That eliminates criminal intent. Trump's attorney just last month saying that Trump cannot be held responsible for his alleged crimes because he was only listening to the advice of lawyers and learned constitutional scholars. This weekend, Trump himself blew that argument out of the water, saying it was all his idea. Also tonight, new reporting on the alleged nexus of Justice Brett Kavanaugh and dark money millionaires in Alabama's open defiance of court rulings on unfairly drawn legislative maps. Plus, have Republicans no shame? Lauren Boebert's public groping is just the latest in a string of bad behavior by the party that pretends to care about family values. But we begin tonight with what appears to be one of the hardest jobs in America, being one of Donald Trump's lawyers. First, you have to worry about whether you will ever be paid by the man notoriously known to skip out on paying his bills, including to his very own lawyers. Just ask Rudy Giuliani. And speaking of Giuliani, there is the second worry, which is that working for Trump could put you in legal and professional jeopardy or at a minimum could make you a witness like another Trump lawyer, Evan Corcoran. And then there was the third worry, how to mount a winning defense for the twice impeached, four times indicted former president who has a penchant for suddenly demolishing his lawyer strategies by making ill-advised confessions. For example, in the classified documents case, Trump's legal team sent out a letter to Congress in April claiming they have seen absolutely no indication that Trump knowingly possessed any of the marked documents and that, in fact, any classified documents that were sent to Mar-a-Lago were due to mistakes by White House staff and the General Services Administration. Just two little weeks later, Trump not only undercut that possible defense, but he did it on live TV. I have every right to under the Presidential Records Act. You have the Presidential Records Act. I was there and I took what I took and it gets declassified. Just so you understand, I had every right to do it. I didn't make a secret of it. And in the other federal case brought by the special counsel involving Trump's attempts to try to overturn the 2020 election, Trump's lead attorney, John Lauro, tried to set the stage to point the blame at Trump's election lawyers at the time, claiming that Trump was just following their advice. Now, whether or not that defense strategy would have actually worked in court, we may never know, because over the weekend, Trump turned to his lawyers and said, hold my beer. You called some of your outside lawyers. You said they had crazy theories. Why were you listening to them? Were you listening to them because they were telling you what you wanted to hear? You know who I listened to myself? I saw what happened. I watched that election and I thought the election was over at 10 o'clock in the evening. Were you calling the shots, though, Mr. President, ultimately? Uh, as to whether or not I believed it was rigged? Oh, sure. I, okay. I, it was my decision. Well, what also must be causing his lawyers uh, a lot of heartburn is the fact that Trump has claimed numerous times in the past few weeks that he is ready and willing to testify under oath during his trials. But it's OK, Trump lawyers. There's nothing to worry about. Uh, let's not forget what Trump claimed back in 2015. I know more about courts than any human being on Earth. Okay. Joining me now is Catherine Christian, former Manhattan Assistant District Attorney, and Joyce Vance, former U.S. Attorney at the University of Alabama Law, Alabama Law Professor and MSNBC Legal Analyst. Y'all are so accomplished. It's so hard for me to do your intros. I have to talk to you, Catherine Christian, first. Uh, as a prosecutor, 
How much would you have given to have the defendant in front of you simply confess to all the crimes on television? Because that that can be used against him in court, right? Those interviews. Oh, yeah. This is a gift to the prosecutors. As his lawyers are crying, the prosecutors are guaranteed there's a member of each team for indictment who are calling culling all of his interviews on radio, on TV, his post things on social media and going, yippee. This is a continuation of his confessions tour. He contradicts his prior statements. He contradicts his lawyers constantly. So even if he doesn't testify at trial, and I think he won't, the prosecutors will play these statements during their direct testimony. They can do this during the direct case. And can they, because he's given public interviews, can they subpoena him? They can't make him testify. No, it's up to him. He has an absolute right to remain silent. Okay. Okay. Well, he ain't using it. (laughs) Let's just say that. (laughs) He's now speaking, so they can use this against him. They can just use it against him. And and, and Joyce, but wait, there's more. Let me just play, because we've played this before, but I just want to, just to give you and the audience just the gravity of the amount of times he keeps confessing to the things he is accused of in court. Roll them. If you're the president of the United States, you can declassify just by saying um, it's declassified, even by thinking about it, because you're sending it to Mar-a-Lago or to wherever you're sending it. In other words, whatever documents the president decides to take with him, he has the absolute right to do so. That's the law, and it couldn't be more clear. As president, you have every right to have these documents, personal belongings, and whatever else there is. Many people have asked me why I had these boxes. Why did you want them? The answer, in addition to having every right under the Presidential Records Act, is that these boxes were containing all types of personal belongings, many, many things, shirts and shoes and everything. I hadn't had a chance to go through all the boxes. It's a long, tedious job, takes a long time, which I was prepared to do, but I have a very busy life. I've had a very busy life. You know, there is a a risk, I think, in a lot of the media of giving Trump more credit for intelligence than he probably deserves based on his just actual behavior. But at the risk of of playing that game, is there a world, Joyce, in which doing this helps him in the sense that it poisons the jury pool because it convinces a certain set of voters that somehow the Presidential Records Act does apply and that even if he, according to this latest ABC News headline, wrote to-do lists on the classified documents. The things are marked classified. He uses them to doodle, to do lists, and literally, you know, sort of destroys the documents by doing that. But even if he's doing something that outrageous, that then there are at least some jurors who have heard him say this enough times that that jury pool is then poisoned. So I think you're exactly right that that's what he's trying to do. When the evidence is this strong against you, you've got to try to poison the jury pool, I guess, if you're Trump, thinking the way that he does. But here's the reality that he will face. During Vordaer, the lawyers will have the opportunity to talk with potential jurors. Most jurors are going to have heard something about this case, and some of them will know a great deal. And the commitment that the lawyers will look for and that the judge will enforce is that those jurors can set aside everything that they've heard outside of the courtroom and decide the case based solely on the evidence and the laws the judge instructs them on it. And although I think sometimes people are incredible and don't believe that that actually happens, it does in courtrooms. And we don't need to look any further than Paul Manafort's trial, where one of the jurors was a woman who said she was a strong Trump supporter. Yeah. But she listened to the evidence in that trial. Manafort was guilty and she voted to convict. 
And the same thing happened, uh, you know, in the E. Jean Carroll case. There were, uh, I exactly. think, one or two lawyers who people, when they heard about sort of what happened in Vardir, were like, well, there's a couple of real Trumpies in there. But in the end, they said they looked at the evidence. Would one of the things that the prosecutor do um, in the closing or during the trial is just explain the Presidential Records Act? Will they get the opportunity to debunk that claim? Because he is injecting that into the sort of atmosphere. They should be able to, or the judge will instruct the jury. Now, this is the classified documents judge is the, different the, the than the January 6th judge. Good point. So, Good point. Uh, because he's just wrong on the law. That is just not the law. He can keep his shirts and his golf shirts, sure. but he can't keep uh, classified documents. The law is clear that the official documents have to go to the National Archives. His personal belongings yeah. can go to him. No, he wants his shirts. I mean, Joyce, I mean, the, the thing about it is, Donald Trump, all the way back to 2015 and 2016, made the argument that Hillary Clinton should be in prison because among the personal records on her personal server were things with a C on them that were incidentally part of the stuff that was in her personal server. They've made the argument that you needed to lock her up. There have been military people, high military officials who've been prosecuted for taking classified documents, former government officials. It is just not the case that anyone gets away with this. So it's wild that he could even try to do it. But I want to go to one of his other sort of claims here. He's also trying to inject into the atmosphere that it was really Nancy Pelosi's fault that January 6th happened. He said in the Meet the Press interview that he ordered tens of thousands of troops, a claim that is just patently false. In fact, his own former defense secretary, acting defense secretary, gave interviews on the record saying, nope, there was never an ask for that. Could a claim like that, Donald Trump lying and trying to cast blame on Speaker Pelosi, is that something that might be at issue in the January 6th case? Because he's also lying about that stuff. So I think to Catherine's point earlier, someplace there are a couple of lawyers on each of these trial teams who are taking meticulous notes every time Trump does an interview. They're probably putting together video clips. And at some point, these juries will be able to compare Trump's statements, these lies that he's telling in public, to what the truth is. That might be witness testimony. Or in the Mar-a-Lago case, I think it's very likely that people who advise Trump about the rules for handling classified documents will testify, and the jury will see the classified documents with their clear markings. And then they'll hear Trump saying, you know, crazy talk about the Presidential Records Act. So, yes, these uh, public interviews that he's giving are ill-advised, to say the least, and prosecutors will end up hanging him with his own words. And let me talk about the lawyers for just a second, because the idea that Donald Trump's own attorneys are going to wind up being witnesses for the prosecution, really in both of these cases, John Eastman and others, that te- that, and, and Mr. Clark, that was going to be his acting AG, and in the case of, uh, there's so many cases, even in the Georgia case, his own lawyers, and in the Mar-a-Lago case, he was trying to fool and trick his own lawyers into breaking the law for him. They didn't do it, Corcoran and others. What is the kind of what are there any stipulations on calling his lawyers to the stand? Is there any limitation? I'll start with you, Catherine. Is there any limitation on calling his attorneys to the stand in either of those cases? Well, they're all now co-defendants. Well, they're co-defendants. Well, not on on the Fulton County. Right, right, right. So and they is defendants. They have a right to remain silent. Yeah. So and if and if that case, uh, if the January 6th case goes first. Um, so the, the they will still have the Fulton County 
you know, indictment hanging over their head. Right. So if they were called to testify, they, they would take the Fifth Amendment. Yes. So they're not going to be, unless they cooperated, they're not going to be witnesses against Donald Trump, though at witnesses for themselves, yeah. they're already pointing fingers at Donald Trump. Well, it's, <laughs> absolutely. And Joyce, you, you are now going to have some of these cases go first. And I want, that is a really good question. If any of those two people that are going to have an early trial in Georgia get convicted, can they still be called as witnesses against Donald Trump when he goes to trial? So it's a little bit complicated here because when you're talking about a Fifth Amendment uh, privilege to avoid incriminating yourself, yes, their liability in Georgia will be at an end. Either they'll have been acquitted or they'll be convicted. But because the federal case is still hanging over them, they could refuse to testify, saying that that case is still out in the atmosphere and avoid testifying that way. Although, Joy, to your point, sometimes defendants post-trial decide that they do want to cooperate, even after a conviction with sentencing down the road that can provide some powerful motivation um, at the 11th hour. Yeah, if I'm one of those Jan 6 defendants that's sitting and cooling my heels in prison, I might consider maybe a little payback time, maybe a little testifying time. We'll, we'll see what happens with those folks. Uh, Joyce Vance, thank you. Catherine Christian is going to stick with me because up next on the readout, a Supreme Court ruling ordering new congressional maps gave hope to black voters in Alabama. So why are they still waiting? New reporting on that infuriating Republican boondoggle and the dark money behind it when the readout continues. Hey, it's Chris Hayes. This week on my podcast, Why Is This Happening? Evangelical pastor and director of Vote Common Good, Doug Paget, on the rise of Christian nationalism and what's at stake in this year's election. We lack a story in this country about what our politics are supposed to achieve. And when we suggest to them that the common good can be your voting identity, rather than being Republican or being a Democrat or being fiscally this or that, big government or small government, but you care about the common good, people are like, oh yeah, that that I actually care about. That's this week on Why Is This Happening. Search for Why Is This Happening wherever you're listening right now and subscribe. On the MSNBC podcast, How to Win 2024, political experts, former Senator Claire McCaskill and Democratic strategist Jennifer Palmieri examine the campaign strategies unfolding in this all-important election. The focus is on the voters that are not necessarily in your corner now. If Democrats are going to win in 2024, we have to be able to explain what is happening at the border and what the solutions are. Search for How to Win 2024 wherever you get your podcasts. New episodes every Thursday. In June, the Supreme Court ordered Alabama to redraw its congressional maps because the maps Republicans drew back in 2021 denied black voters the opportunity to elect a candidate of their choice in almost all of the districts. In July, in open defiance of that court order, the Republican-controlled Alabama legislature gave the middle finger to the Supreme Court and submitted yet another map that once again denied black voters equal representation. A lower court's three-judge panel had enough of the Republican obstruction and ordered a court-appointed special master to draw the map. At the time, the legislature's defiance was pretty much shocking and confusing until the Alabama political reporter, an online news site, dug a little deeper, uncovering a, the real reason. According to its sources, the state's decision to ignore the court is part of a larger strategy intended to force the high court to rehear the entire case and to strike down Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act altogether. 
The sources who spoke on condition of anonymity described a plan concocted by D.C.-based attorneys and championed by Alabama Attorney General Steve Marshall and other Alabama Republican officials. These sources say that Republicans believe that they would win their argument if the Supreme Court reviewed their new map. How can they be so sure? Well, these same sources revealed that Republican lawmakers believe their D.C. connections have intelligence that Justice Brett Kavanaugh is open to hearing the case on its merits. NBC has not confirmed that reporting. Now, what the Alabama political reporter could not tell us at the time was who in Washington, D.C. was backing this open defiance. Well, today in a new report, they seem to have figured it out. And it will not surprise you to learn that Leonard Leo and people close to him play a central role in pushing Alabama to defy the Supreme Court. Namely, a D.C.-based law firm called Consovoy McCarthy, which works hand in glove with right-wing groups tied to Leonard Leo. According to the website, Alabama's Solicitor General Edmund LaCour, a member of another Leo group, the Federalist Society, who argued the original case before the Supreme Court, is working with the D.C. law firm, since he is the original architect of the defiance plan. LaCour's wife also happens to work on Brett Kavanaugh's confirmation team. Just look at that. A direct link from Alabama to a sitting member of the court, which was unknown until it was reported just today. The state's attorney general, Steve Marshall, who's looking to capitalize on this obstruction for future political gain, also has ties to multiple Leo organizations, including the Federalist Society and the Republican Attorneys General Association, which gets a whole lot of money from Leo. This comes days after Politico reported that Leonard Leo has created an extensive infrastructure to push key conservative issues like gerrymandering, opposing affirmative action, abortion access, and in that, religious liberty and pro-fossil fuel cases before a friendly court. Look at that. With the help of one of the justices' wives, Jenny Thomas. Now, you can understand why Republicans across the country are emboldened to strip people of their rights given that the majority of the conservative court has direct links to Leonard Leo's Federalist Society. We will find out pretty soon what the court thinks about Alabama's defiance. The Secretary of State has requested the Supreme Court stay the lower court's decision, which forced a neutral arbiter to draw a new map. Joining me now is the man who broke all of this new and very important reporting, Bill Britt, editor-in-chief of Alabama Political Reporter. And back with us is Catherine Christian. Uh, Let me just let you explain to us, please, Mr. Britt, and great reporting, great job on this. Where was this plot to openly defy the court order hatched in Alabama or in Washington, or was it a joint operation? Both below is that it was a joint operation because what happened was this idea came down from Washington, but it was accepted by Steve Marshall and Edmund LaCour, who then went to the legislature and convinced the Senate, the state Senate, to pass these defiant maps, while the House of Representatives in Alabama resisted it. But the fix was in because you had the connections, as you had pointed out, between the LaCours, Marshall, Consloy, Leo Leonard, and all the machinations of this ultra-right, dark money network that wants to come to the birthplace of the civil rights movement and disenfranchise black voters once again. Right, because let, let's not forget that the first case gutting uh, the, the, the Voting Rights Act also 
was in the state of Alabama. That was the case that happened in 2012, uh, 2013. So, so let's go back again. Um, how are they so confident that Brett Kavanaugh would rule in their direction? Well, one of the things they've done, Joy, is they've cited Justice Kavanaugh repeatedly in their appeals and in their arguments, how he argued that race-based voting can't or redistricting cannot go on forever. The same sort of argument that was made in the, under the 14th Amendment to strike down affirmative action. And what they're counting on is that Kavanaugh will say, well, when I heard the case on the merits, because they didn't hear it on the merits, but when we hear the case on the merits, I've changed my mind. Because, you know, he was not all in with Chief Judge Justice Roberts and the other judges, uh, the other justices. He was only a big toe in, but it was a significant in. But this time they're hoping they can change their mind. Now, I cannot say with any certainty that Justice Kavanaugh will join in the scheme. But when you look at the bedfellows, it is an awfully crowded queen size bed. Well, and Jenny Thomas is in it as well. Uh, talk a little bit about the fact that, you know, Jenny Thomas, our insurrectionist uh, wife of a Supreme Court justice, she's also tied to this dark money operation. And this is the thing that I, I hope people can come to understand that it, it, you know, Leonard Leo is called the architect of our current Supreme Court. And you have Jenny Thomas, who is literally in bed with one of the justices, and he is bent on changing American jurisprudence and disenfranchising black voters, even though he's a black man. But I would say he went from being an angry young black man to a very angry old black man since the day he was confirmed. And this is the problem that we're having, is that there is a cabal or a group, as you may call them, that are working to turn America into a white Christian nation. Now, I can't even find three churches in Alabama that agree on what Christianity is, much less who gets to decide what a white Christian nation looks like in the United States of America. And to turn to you, Catherine, I mean, they're doing this by making the argument that allowing 27 percent of the population to have more than one congressional district, 27 percent of the population has one congressional district, is the real racism. It is racist in their argument to force white voters to vote next to black voters in the same districts. Your thoughts? And, and that's ridiculous. This is sort of it's well, it's not sort of it is. It's like reverting back to what happened after Brown v. Board of Education in 1954, when the Southern states said, F you, so yeah. to speak, to the Supreme Court. And there was a massive resistance to it. This is the same. The Supreme Court is 5-4 in June. If Kavanaugh flips, it'll be 5-4 and it'll be reverting back. And yeah. then this one district will, will survive. Legally, doesn't this state still have to draw these new districts? They've been ordered by a judge to do it. Can they avoid it? They can unless they get a stay, which is what they're that's which is what they want, which is that's why they're they're fighting it to the bitter end. They want that stay from the Supreme Court. I'll give you the last word, uh, Mr. Britt. Uh, this is your reporting. 
Is the legislature or is the special master seated to your understanding? And are they prepared to start drawing maps as ordered by the court? He's a man named Richard Allen. He uh, is known to be fair, but he is very right wing. He is not a moderate. So it gives us pause to think that we do not have a neutral map drawer. But I've been told, and I know him, that he's fair. Let's see if he's fair in a state that doesn't play fair. Well said. Uh, Bill Britt, congratulations on the great reporting. Please come back and keep us posted on what's happening uh, in this case. Catherine Christian, thank you so much for doing a little overtime with us. All right. Still ahead, lowering the bar, the list of embarrassing misdeeds by House Republicans just keeps on growing. And it seems like Republican voters just really couldn't care less. More on that baffling state of affairs next. Join MSNBC's Simone Sanders Townsend, Michael Steele, and Alicia Menendez as they team up to host The Weeknd. We want to get the newsmakers, the people that are in the middle of what is happening. It's about the conversation. A lot of Americans check out of conversations. We want to check them in. Conversation we begin and that you continue all week long. The Weeknd, Saturdays and Sundays at 8 a.m. Eastern on MSNBC. Jen Psaki. Have you ever seen the House this dysfunctional? Rachel Maddow. If winning the election is his plan to stay out of prison, what happens in that election if and when he does not win it? Mondays, back to back. Talk about the stakes of this back and forth, given Trump's behavior. What do you make of the statement from Hamas? Why they're doing it? What, what do you think it means? Inside with Jen Psaki at 8 p.m. Eastern, followed by the Rachel Maddow Show at 9 p.m. Eastern, Mondays on MSNBC. talk to Republican voters for just a second. And I mean, I mean, real talk. When you look at the people who supposedly represent your values in government, if you're honest with yourself, aren't you kind of embarrassed? I mean, are you really proud to be represented by Marjorie Taylor Greene and George Anthony DeValder Santos and Matt Gates? Or what about Lauren Boebert? The one who is this Lauren Boebert in the streets. Speaking as a mother of four boys, Enough is enough. I don't send my boys to school to receive indoctrination from the woke mob or to be sexualized by groomers. Yeah, but this Lauren Boebert in the dark. I mean, citizens of Aspen, this is your congresswoman. For once, reaching across the aisle, shall we say. Look at her and just keep it real. That's not even her soon-to-be ex-husband, hashtag no-fault divorce, who, by the way, has a police record for exposing himself in front of teenagers. Now, come on. Aren't you embarrassed? That's the same Lauren Boebert who calls Democrats and LGBTQ people and drag queens groomers. So is that, is that the quality of representation that you genuinely want? As a side note, her new friend is reportedly a liberal who runs a bar that holds LGBTQ-friendly events, including drag shows just for added irony. So are all of the pretend Christians who can't find a shred of compassion in their hearts for Hunter Biden and his drug addiction going to give Boebert the grace that she has asked for in her apology? Because apparently this Christian grace thing is politically situational and only available to Republicans who commit adultery and catch the feels with someone not their husband or vape in front of pregnant women for that extra 
pro-life spice. Meanwhile, the only colleague coming to her rescue at the moment appears to be the equally embarrassing Matt Gates, who said that he stands by Lauren Boebert because she's effective. Effective at what exactly? Trolling, rampant hypocrisy, making Beetlejuice into a rom-com? Everything about Boebert's constant belligerent and outrageous behavior is just another iteration of the staggering entitlement of today's Republicans. The same kind of entitlement that Texas Attorney General Ken Paxton showed in his impeachment trial as his own Republican staff testified that he abused his office to do the bidding of a wealthy donor and in how he handled his own extramarital affair. Well, over the weekend, the right-wing Republicans in the Texas Senate heard all about that and decided they weren't embarrassed at all and acquitted him right back to back, being and acquitted him right back to being the state's top cop. Embarrassing behavior is at every level of the Republican Party at this point. Democrats have Obama. Republicans have a pretend Obama, Vivek Ramaswamy, who loudly did this imitation during the first presidential debate. First, let me just address a question that is on everybody's mind at home tonight. Who the heck is this skinny guy with a funny last name? And what the heck is he doing in the middle of this debate stage? Straight lifted from Obama. This is the guy who made the ridiculous claim that the NRA worked to free black people after slavery and said that he would have magically passed election reform from the Senate chamber on January 6th if he was vice president and would somehow magically have Putin quit China. He just make him do it. That is so dumb. Harvard and the Soros family should disown him. Oh, wait, you didn't know that he was a Soros affirmative action recipient despite supposedly opposing affirmative action? Yeah, and he got gutted like a fish for his hypocrisy by our colleague, Mehdi Hassan. Well, do you know, like $750,000? On the financial piece of it. Not at, not at the time that I had applied for the scholarship yes, you did. that fall. Yes, you did. In December. Yes, you did, on December, This, Mehdi, is, this I, is awkward for you because you me, did. Just, I've got the tax returns in front no, of my it's face. Not awkward. It was awkward for him. That is your bootleg Obama Republicans, really? And then you have Donald Trump who apparently thinks that he ran against Obama in 2016 and that World War II hasn't happened yet. And y'all claim it's Biden who's non-corpus mentis? Come on now, just admit that you're embarrassed. Whether or not you agree with someone like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez or Ayanna Presley, Adam Schiff, Jamie Raskin, you can most certainly say that they are not embarrassing. I mean, vote for who you want to vote for, but shouldn't voters at least have some standards? We'll give you even more on what the Republican Cringe Caucus is up to next. Mr. Speaker, you are out of compliance with the agreement that allowed you to assume this role. The path forward for the House of Representatives is to either bring you into immediate total compliance or remove you. Hide your teenage daughter. So, so some seems like only yesterday that Congressman Matt Gates of Florida began his ongoing slap fight with House Speaker Kevin McCarthy. And it's only gotten more embarrassing as Gates and the rest of the MAGA fringe caucus inch us closer and closer to a government shutdown by opposing McCarthy's efforts to get Republicans to, I don't know, pass a bill to fund the government. In the meantime, Gates has real priorities. Sources tell NBC News he's widely expected to run for governor of Florida in 2026 because, of course, joining me now is David Jolly, MSNBC political analyst and former Republican congressman who's no longer affiliated with the party. And I wonder why um, you are the perfect person that we really want to talk to on this. Honestly, David, because you've been one of the people who's been the most candid that you actually did feel embarrassment about this party, which is why you're not affiliated with it anymore. Yeah. And I think at some point we have to talk about the voters who are the taste level of someone like a Matt Gates or Kevin McCarthy. Yeah. 
How are these people even electable? Make it make sense for us. Yeah, and I'd take it one step further, Joy. I felt embarrassment at some of the actions and then regret, not so much that I didn't try to address it when I was there, but that I failed, even on policy issues like gun and mer- guns and marriage equality, campaign finance, climate reform or climate change, things I tried to do even as a Republican, I failed. And it was a clear signal to me as I became ostracized, ostracized that this was not my party. And then you look at the contrast of those who really are carrying the heartbeat of today's Republican Party, Matt Gates, Lauren Boebert, Marjorie Taylor Greene, even Kevin McCarthy, who allows all of this. And you realize it really is an embarrassing club to be considered a member of. Right now, however, Matt Gates, kind of the leader of that club, has Kevin McCarthy exactly where he wants him. And I don't think we should feel bad for Kevin McCarthy because he has created this moment. And if there are Republicans in the caucus tonight who feel embarrassment, you created it, too. Yeah, because you elected Kevin McCarthy speaker under this corrupt bargain that he struck with Gates and others. And I have to say that no woman, Nancy Pelosi, could never have become speaker exhibiting the kind of mediocrity that we've seen in Kevin McCarthy. Let's just be honest. No woman could get that far in politics uh, in the Democratic Party. It just wouldn't happen. And I'm not saying Democratic voters are better or smarter. It's just that there's a certain minimum standards that they demand. A lot of these Democrats are lawyers. They're constitutional scholars like Jamie Raskin. They get up and articulate their people like Obama. And Democrats will really punish you if they don't think that you're sort of smart and kind of there. But in the Republican Party, somebody like a Matt Gates can legitimately legitimately say he's going to be the governor. Look at the current governor. He thinks slavery benefited black people. So it's like, how is there a way to to pull back Republican voters and say to them, you can have better than Lauren Boebert. (laughs) You don't need her. I don't don't think so. This is a path that Republican voters have chosen by elevating these people. They continue to reelect them. And Joy, I would suggest assigning mediocrity to Kevin McCarthy is very generous of you tonight. (laughs) You must be in a a good cheer Um, because the bottom line is the only reason Kevin McCarthy got the job after 15 votes is because nobody else would take it. (laughs) If anybody else had challenged Kevin McCarthy, he would have lost. And even today, the only thing that might be saving Kevin McCarthy from a motion to vacate is nobody else will take the job. Elise Stefanik, maybe Steve Scalise are looking at it. Elise is probably salivating for it, but not in this moment. And so Gates also knows that because a motion to vacate is a nuclear trigger that removes Kevin McCarthy. But then what? The one reason Matt Gates might do this, and he is very deliberative, very conniving. If he does this, it will be for a reason. And that reason likely is because he intends to win the Republican nomination for governor in the state of Florida in 26. Uh, Yeah. And don't even get me started on Elise Stefanik, because she is not mediocre. She's just faking it. And that's even more embarrassing than actually being mediocre. Um, I want to talk about Donald Trump for a moment, because I am still old enough to remember when a Republican saying liberal Jews are are ruining America and ruining Israel. Something like that would get you excised from the party. No one would want to be seen with you. How are we at a point when the former president of the United States attacks Jewish people broadly on Rosh Hashanah (laughs) and no one says anything? Um, Part ignorance and part of permission structure culturally that allows anti-Semitism, bias and racism to proliferate and elevate itself within the Republican Party. Look, Donald Trump is making a case that some have tried to make embedded in the qualitative process of policy, but he is making an anti-Semitic conclusion because it's based on the fact that he thinks Jewish Americans are a monolithic 
uh, voting bloc, that they are monolithic in their view of the world and in their politics. And when you assign a monolithic quality to any race, to any gender, to black and brown communities or the Jewish American community, you are admitting an intrinsic bias. And that is what he has done. And those words resonated with the Jewish American community and every other community that has felt that intrinsic bias from a from a political leader. They saw that in Donald Trump. And it's right that we condemn him for it tonight. Uh, we saw Mitt Romney, you know, be very candid. Even though, let's just be clear. Mitt Romney humiliated himself having that dinner with Trump, tried to be his secretary of state. He had his moments, yeah. too. But he seems to have kind of sobered up. Uh, and I wonder if behind the scenes you still you have conversations with any sitting members, if you are, are talking with them, that admit behind the scenes that they, too, are embarrassed by where the party is today. Yeah, but they cut the wood and sanded it for the coffin that Mitt, Mitt Romney just put a nail in. I mean, Mitt Romney's departure is one more nail in the coffin of a Republican Party that died a long time ago. It is not coming back. And I think his words of resignation really reflect that. Mitt Romney's type in the Republican Party are gone. They've been with, out of power for a long time. His departure is an affirmation that this party's dead. And the question is, can Democrats go into a debate with a party that is no longer coalescing or rooted around ideology and politics, but instead this authoritarianism, angry, populist, cultural theme? And can Democrats beat that back with traditional policies that try to lift all people up? It's a contest of ideas that Democrats must win next November. Oh, or that we won't have a democracy. We certainly won't have voting rights. And women will essentially right. all be living in a red state with no rights over our own bodies. They want a national abortion ban. We're going to have to talk about that on another show. Uh, David Jolly, always appreciate yeah. you, man. Thank you very much. And coming up, Rolling Stone co-founder Jan Wenner comes under fire for offensive comments about women and black folks. We'll be right back. Over the weekend, the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame board ousted one of its founders, Jan Wenner, after he said black and female musicians were not intellectually articulate enough to be included in his new book. In an interview with The New York Times, the Rolling Stone magazine co-founder was pressed on why his book, The Masters, yes, that is the actual title, which contains interviews with seven rock legends, only features white men. To which Wenner responded regarding the women of rock, just none of them were as articulate enough on this intellectual level. He expressed a similar sentiment about black artists, you know, who historically are the ones responsible for creating the genre and culture that Wenner has personally profited from with Rolling Stone. Of black artists, I mean, you know, Stevie Wonder, incredibly genius. You know, they're genius, right? These are genius artists. <clears throat> I mean, I suppose when you use a word as broad as the masters, the fault is using that word, you know, but uh, maybe Marvin Gaye, you just, I could cut Curtis Mayfield or, I mean, they just didn't articulate at that level, you know, for just for public relations sake, maybe I should have gone and found uh, one black and one woman artist to include here. They didn't measure up to that same historical standards just to, to avert this kind of criticism. Joining me now is Nelson George, filmmaker, cultural critic, and author of The Hippest Trip in America, Soul Train, and the Evolution of Culture and Style. Mr. Nelson George, it is good to uh, get a chance to talk with you. Um, I'm just going to let you comment on the fact that Jan Wenner wasn't articulate enough to form a defense for his own silly racist comments. Well, I want to preface my remarks by saying all seven of the artists that he lists are great artists. Sure. I went to see Bruce Springsteen at Giant Stadium a couple of weeks ago. That said, the underlying prejudice 
behind his comments speak to the overall impact of Rolling Stone over the last 40 years. Because Rolling Stone was the preeminent, quote unquote, music magazine of the, of the rock era, their influence was very wide. So radio programmers, TV stations, other magazines, newspapers, all took a cue from what Rolling Stone said was hip. So if your measure of greatness is a white guy with a guitar, <laughs> White guy with a guitar that Jan Winter likes, even more importantly. <laughs> right. That means that Joni Mitchell, that means that Marvin Gaye, Stevie Wonder, that means that uh, alternative uh, Patti Smith. There's a whole range of artists who could have gotten more coverage, but never got the coverage they deserved. And more, I would even say, when you look at what MTV did, they took their cues from Rolling Stone to some degree, and that defense of what is rock. So what Rolling Stone did was take rock from the founders of the music and make it into white music. Yeah. And that idea ended up becoming penetrating the entire culture and, this, and sort of reframing the history of American music in a very bad way. I mean, the thing, and I was writing notes as you were, you were speaking. I mean, to not include Jimi Hendrix, you know, one of the great, you know, so he doesn't think, he thinks that the people who derive their art from somebody like Hendrix or from the other founder, Mick Jagger admits to the influence of people like Tina Turner. He went to see, you know, Aretha Franklin and stood in the back as she did a concert and marveled at her. They even acknowledge, you're right, these are great artists, people like Bono. They acknowledge that they took that music that was black music and repurposed it and made it their own. Black folk invented it. Little Richard. It, these people invented rock and roll. I, I want to read you some of his apology and let you respond to it. In my interview in the New York Times, I made comments that diminished the contributions, genius, and impact of black women artists. And I apologize wholeheartedly for these remarks. The Masters is a collection of interviews I've done over the years that seem to make me, the, uh, to, to me, to best represent the ideas of rock and roll's impact on my world. They're not meant to represent the whole of music and its diverse, important originators, but to reflect the points of my career. In interviews, I felt interested in the breadth and experience of their career, blah, blah, blah. Don't affect my appreciation and admiration for the myriad totemic, world-changing artists whose music and ideas I revere and will celebrate and promote as long as I live. Okay, so that's that's his response. Your, your thoughts? Well, it- he called it the masters. <laughs> if he called it my favorite artist, we wouldn't be having this conversation at the same level. We'd still be pissed on some level. But it, the masters, come on, dude. Come on. <laughs> that was sense irony. But that was know, sense irony. Just the 10 white men, yeah. and you called it the masters, and their music is literally lifted, for, as great as they are, from black people, and you called it the masters. It, it, to me, it also tells the story of who's around him. No one in his circle said, we might not want to call this the masters. No one in his circle said, you know, there's only 10 white guys. There's no Hendrix. There's not, no one. It's a, that to me. Doesn't this also tell you the story of why they hate DEI, but why you need diversity in the room when you're making these decisions? From the 70s, 80s, I, I would say arguing to the mid 90s, almost no black writers wrote for Rolling Stone. Um, ben Fontoris, uh, Asian writer, was a founding member, and he did many, many great stories. Um, but throughout the 80s, ni- uh, all those years, they were very, very, I don't, not that many women also, but very, very mm-hmm. almost no black writers. So when you look back at the era, Boston or Kansas or Chicago or any group named after a city or state that was a rock band could get in Rolling Stone. <laughs> but Chaka Khan, uh, the Brothers Johnson, P-Funk, Earth and the Fire, they would not get equivalent coverage. 
Uh, and so that skews the, that skews because everyone used Rolling Stone for a long right. time as the measure for what was going on. Yeah, and David, so the entire history. Go ahead. No, I was going to say David Bowie eviscerated David Bowie, right? MTV. Yeah, David Bowie eviscerated MTV for right. that. Like took them out for that. Right. That they weren't putting Black Hour songs. Right. And so, so also this kind of criteria that he created means that if you don't, if you're if you're a singer, if you're not a singer songwriter, if you're a Whitney Houston who's an interpreter or Luther Vandross, you don't fit into that panthe- pantheon. Right. Yeah. Um, and the irony, of course, is that uh, the articulate question. Uh, one of the things I cited uh, in my, my video that I put up about his response was uh, an article in hip hop they did in 83 where they kind of got the history all wrong. Right. right. You can't tell me that there's anyone yep. more articulate in pop music than Chuck D right. or Ice Cube. Exactly. Or a, I, I hear you. I, I got to go good because Chris Hayes got a show next. But thank you, Nelson George. I appreciate you. That is tonight's readout. Get the latest updates on this year's high-stakes election with MSNBC's How to Win 2024 newsletter. When you subscribe, you'll get expert analysis on key races sent straight to your inbox, including articles written by the host of the How to Win podcast, Jennifer Palmieri. Subscribe today at msnbc.com win.